0: Hey, before we get into this one, a couple reminders and shameless plugs. First off, the intro and outro music is thanks to Light Theory, so if you're into it, you can check out more of their music in the show notes and the website. Also, don't forget, you can like A Better Story Podcast on Facebook, at A Better Story, and on Twitter, at A Better Story Pod. And I haven't mentioned this one yet, but you can go on iTunes and give A Better Story Podcast a review, which is super helpful in the podcast world. So shameless plugs aside, today I have a conversation with Yolanda Norton for you. And Yolanda is the assistant professor of Old Testament at San Francisco Theological Seminary. Yolanda sat down to talk about womanism. Now, womanism, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a term that describes a black female perspective on the Bible. And if you're like, I don't know what you mean by that, uh, just listen. The, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Yolanda's going to unpack some scripture and a passage or a story for us. And it's, uh, it's some really good stuff. So good that I'm actually releasing a bonus episode as well with the continued conversation that I had with Yolanda. For time-wise, I cut it out of the main episode, but it's seriously just as good. Uh, So check out the bonus episode. Uh, It's unedited, but still totally worth your time. She talks about other stories and gives some resources to dig deeper. So check out Yolanda Norton. I'm guessing that most listeners aren't going to know, like, if I just say, let's talk about womanism, they're not going to know what womanism is. So you want to start just kind of giving an overview of what womanism is and then specifically in relation to the Bible, why is it important? Why is it significant?
1: So the kind of standard one sentence answer to the the, the answer to what is womanism is it's the perspective of black women, right? So um, and within that, you have to deal with a subset of uh, the difference between how you um, articulate the interests of African-American women, of African women, of uh, uh, Afro-Caribbean women, right? So there are all these kind of subsets. And then there's the intersectionality of how all of those experience comes, uh, experiences come together. And so you're really representing Black diasporadic women. So that's the, the standard thing. The way that I... Um, so then people are often like, well, why is that not Black feminist? Right. So when I talk to my students, I start by explaining a couple of things. The first is that Alice Walker, who's the mother of kind of the term womanist in in many popular circles and scholarly circles, uh, describes her kind of transition into womanism by talking about her reality as a black feminist. And so she said she kept going into these feminist circles and identifying herself as a feminist and then realizing that there was no space for her. There was no intellectual or personal space for her in the feminist movement. And so oftentimes, it's that uh, feminist thought equals white feminist thought. Yeah and that the things that are important for white feminists are antithetical to the realities of of, um, black women. Mm. So the the example that I give my students is that um, when white women were fighting for the right to work, black women were already in the workplace. Mm. And they were often, their workplace was often the homes of the white women who wanted to go to work. And so when this kind of right-to-work movement took off, it actually put an additional burden on black women to mm. be in white homes more than they were in their own homes. And so it created um, a, a kind of tension in that way. And so these are the kinds of things that kind of put the the realities of the feminist and the womanist movement into tension.
0: Yeah. I think people often will say, well, related to, like, the Bible, why don't we just read the Bible objectively? Uh, Which I know is such a loaded question. Yes. Um, You know, if someone's running that through their head right now, what are your your thoughts on that one?
1: So first of all, uh, the Bible wasn't intended to be an objective document. Uh, History is a subjective endeavor, right? So there there are only certain people who get to tell the story. Um, And so because history in my opinion, is subjective in and of itself, and then we're dealing with an ideological do- document that is in itself both uh, theological and subjective, then there's no way to read the text objectively. So like, so the first thing is we bust that myth yeah. right, like, yeah. wide open. And then we say, from a woman's perspective, we say some of the things that are represented for an ancient Israelite context are oppressive to black women, And then on top of that, some of the reception history of these texts are oppressive to black women. And so when we do Womanist Biblical Scholarship, we start um, a kind of dialectic conversation that, that decides that certain things are not efficacious for black women to hold on to in the text. Yeah, yeah, way
0: to be. Yeah. Well, um, I think people will probably be most helped by actually you know looking at some texts and seeing from uh your perspective what you're how you're reading them what you're seeing in them and drawing them out so you want to talk about some texts for a little while and some passages i
1: can do that um so you know i it's important for me uh to start with the book of ruth uh it's a it's a pretty personal text for me it is what my dissertation is on um, I have a publication and a, a book called I Found God in Me. Um, it, I wrote a chapter on it, and that was really the, the beginning of my machinations towards my dissertation. Right. So I encounter this Ruth text, and for me, it becomes intimate because most often when you walk into a church, on a, a black church on a women's day, I'm going to say a good 50% of the time, Someone's talking about the Book of Ruth. And usually when they're preaching or teaching this text, it's this idea that Naomi was this kind of maternal figure, this sage for Ruth, and so Naomi protects Ruth, and Ruth is this young woman with her energy and her vitality who works on Naomi's behalf. And so we have, for all of these people, this paradigmatic representation of what like mutual intergenerational relationship should look like, except not. Um, (laughs) uh, So my hermeneutic of suspicion Um starts to kick in, and as a womanist, the first thing I've got to contend with is that. So for most people, when they read this text, these women become a part of the same kind of ethnic group, except for the text is really intentional in telling us that they're not. Yeah. Right. So now I've got to say, what does their difference do uh, to them? And so when I read Ruth one, one of the things, the first things that I notice is that it's six times the author points to the idea that of Moab, that Ruth is a Moabite, they were in the land of Moab, mm-hmm. they being Naomi and Elimelech and Kilion and Malon, right? Um, and so that for me, uh, as a biblical scholar says, well, repetition matters. Yeah. Why the repetition? Well, if you pair that repetition with an understanding of philology, the first thing that you have to understand is that... You go back and define that word. <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> um, the first thing that you understand is that the text is supposed to have a meaning. And so Moab should point you back to the the story of um, in Genesis 19, right? Uh, the story of Lot and his daughters, right? So this is where Moab comes from. They sleep with their father. And there is a, a seed. And... So according to this story, Moab means from the father, right? It's the preposition mem in Hebrew meaning from and of meaning father, so from the father. The problem is philologically, linguistically, right? When you do the grammar and the syntax, uh, that's bad Hebrew. That's not what it would be. And you have the question of why would the Moabites name themselves based on what's considered a bit of a um, a perverse relationship? And so um, historically, we have some sense that during the time that this text was written, there was no Moab. We think they existed before. We think that there are some traces of them after. But during the time that this literature is being written, Mm. there's no Moab. Well, what does that mean? It means it's really easy to construct an enemy uh, in the literature that's not there in real life, <laughs> right? Uh, so why continue to name Moab in the first chapter of Ruth? From my perspective, you name Moab uh, that many times because you're you're setting the stage for the, the oath that Ruth is going to take at the end of the chapter, right? Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. So now if you read this text, all these things about bad things about moab might be conjured and then ruth says all of those things about my native identity i lay down for the sake of israel right because because in this this vow that she takes yahweh is supreme israelite is is the ideal and her loyalty has been articulated So for me, when I read that, I think the biblical writer is trying to say Ruth is staking her claim as distinctly different than her ancestors. My womanist take on that is to push back on that and say, actually, no. Maybe she is naming herself as loyal to Israel. But when she does this, what she does is set the scene for her to um, mimic the behaviors of her ancestors. Mm. Because to to read what happens between Lot and his daughters as some kind of lustful perverse relationship is a misunderstanding of what happened. Mm. These young women, Lot's daughters, saw their people dying and they did what they thought was necessary to preserve their community, and that's the exact same thing that Ruth does, right? So where is maybe the biblical author wanted to say, Ruth is different from these Moabites. In this way, Ruth is uh, it exhibits the power, the strength, the tenacity, and the perseverance of a Moabite. And for, for black women, that means that all the ways that we are named as, uh, all the ways that we are sexualized, named as sexually perverse, commodified Mm -hmm. in our personhood we have to push back at that and say no all of these things that we are are a part of our beauty and our tenacity and our perseverance and our ability to do that which is necessary to keep our people moving forward right so that's that's kind of the first moment in Ruth one (laughs) (laughs) thank you so so then and then Naomi responds to this, this huge vow that, that Ruth makes. Naomi disp- responds with silence and bitterness, mm. right? The text says that when she saw that Ruth was determined to go, she said no more. And then the next time we see Naomi speak, at the end of chapter one, the narrator says the, the town's women were stirred at the, um, the presence of Ruth and Naomi, but actually when the women of Bethlehem speak, they speak to Naomi. And when they speak to Naomi, they, you know this is Naomi, Naomi responds and says, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitter. And she explains her bitterness because she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. It's a peculiar thing to say when someone who is standing next to you who has volunteered to lay down their life for your well-being. And so, again, for me, I see all of the ways in which the sacrifice of black women is ignored and handled with some degree of contempt. Mm. And so Ruth says nothing in the scene and all of the sudden when we transition from Ruth 1 to Ruth 2 the first time we the next time we see Ruth speak what she does is say let me go glean this field um, and it's this kind of emphatic imperative I'm going to go glean in the field it's less of a question yeah. and more yeah. of a, a statement and I would argue it's a statement that is uh, wrapped up in her desire to be seen mm. to be acknowledged right You just, I just gave you this vow you just told these people you had nothing. I am going to prove to you that I am something, right? And so she she goes out and she, uh, she so she says this to Naomi and she heads out to glean in the field, and to me, this is probably the second place that Naomi fails Ruth. Hmm. Because when Na- when Ruth says I'm going to I'm going to go out into the field, all Naomi essentially says is okay. Like, okay, go. But what we find out later in this chapter from Boaz is that it was potentially dangerous for Ruth to be gleaning in this field. She happens across the right field, but there is all kinds of liability wrapped up in her being a Moabite widow out here in the field. And so maybe it's because Naomi is ensconced in her own grief. Uh, Maybe it's because she's apathetic to Ruth's presence. Maybe those things are interchangeable and you can't disconnect them. But either way, Naomi puts Ruth at danger Mm -hmm. and we have to be critical of that moment. And so it raises the the question for me about all of the ways that, if we return to the beginning, what are the ways that the feminist movement has failed black women? Mm -hmm. Right, For all of the ways that black women uh, had to needed to stand in solidarity with white women throughout history, and they were met with apathy and or contempt mm-hmm. that puts our very lives in danger, yeah. right. And so so we see this kind of failure on Naomi's part, and in spite of that, uh, Ruth, you know, ends up in the right field, encounters Boaz and uh, returns home to Naomi with his bounty and Naomi's response to this bounty is like oh this is great but then her next move is to essentially pimp Ruth yeah. right put on your makeup anoint yourself and go to the threshing room floor and so she essentially she sends her into yet another dangerous situation right we know from the text that the the text says that the men on the threshing floor were eating and drinking, right? So there's some sense, both in the text and historically, that what happened was men on the threshing floor separating the wheat from the chaff, and as they're doing it, or after they're doing it, they're becoming drunk. Yeah. So, and what we know kind of archaeologically about uh, threshing floors is that they're pretty open spaces, right? So there's not really a whole lot of covering for Ruth. It's dark. These men are drunk. So the likelihood that she could have been uh, sexually assaulted in this moment is high. There's even a a strong possibility that Boaz in his drunken state could have sexually assaulted her. All of these things are uh, ostensibly uh, irrelevant for the author and for Naomi in the text. And yet Ruth persevere, right? She goes to the threshing floor. She secures this relationship with Boaz. She's named by Boaz as an eshet chayil, a, a worthy woman. Though, um, some might translate that as a woman of power. And Boaz goes and he he interacts with the person who is supposed to be Ruth's, or actually Naomi's, next of kin, and inherit this this land and this person of, of uh, Naomi uh, at the gate. And the the, the Mr. So-and-so is what we call him because the text never gives him yeah. a name, right? At first is willing to acquire the things associated with Elimelech until he realizes that in doing that he has to acquire, acquire this Moabite woman, which again shows us how tenuous the relationship yeah. between Israel and Moab is. So Boaz kind of, through this kind of inductive process, tricks this next of kin into showing himself as is, is not faithful and marries Ruth. Right? So he 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 marries Ruth and Ruth has a child. And the next time that we see the women of Bethlehem, right? We've seen them at the end of Ruth one, we see them again here at the beginning of Ruth four. So they kind of book in the text in some ways. What they say is, is fascinating, and most people miss it. They say, blessed be Naomi, for the Lord has given her a child, wow. right? And they call Ruth faithful, but the child and the blessings are Naomi. And so for me, what's important about this is the ways in which we talk about the social surrogacy of black women. What are the ways in which black women are compelled into dangerous situations to give birth to things in life that are then commodified and owned by white women? Right? And so Ruth, in some ways, it continues to be marginalized on both ends of the story. And it begs the question for Black women, how long? How long are we going to continue to walk into situations that ask us to be social surrogates for other people in hopes of getting some affection or care in public space and continue to be rejected and call that that rejection a blessing? Mm. And so for me, these are the things that, that that complicate a reading of this text and complicate it in particular for the the livelihood of black women. Yeah.
0: That is so much richer and more in-depth than the sort of like, I was always taught Ruth as sort of either this like romantic story or maybe like a sister to the traveling pants kind of thing where <laughs> these two women have this companionship. And it ignores all those dynamics of power and ethnicity and the nuances of it. I mean, it's just missing so much.
1: Yes. Yes. And and when you ignore them, it's dangerous. Yeah. 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 And yeah. it
0: allows the sort of abuse that we've seen throughout history continue to occur because it's read from the position of power. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Right.
0: So as you look at that story and it's, it's clear, it's um, moving you and... Empowering you, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. What do you see it doing as you look at culture and the situation of particularly American culture today? Does it guide you? Does it direct you,
1: anyways? Um, so, again, it says to me so when i think about this again i think about the some of the tenuous relationships between black women and white women in our current climate right and we saw some hints of this come out in the most recent election and even in the wake of that right when when there was the 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 big women's march that came out right the idea that women of color were still having to fight and Mm -hmm. push for intersectionality as if Um, the kind of sexist comments that uh, Donald Trump made did not have an adverse effect on women of color, right? As if our lives were not at stake in this. But but that the original planning of this march was very whitewashed, right? So I see things like that. I see this text come into conversation even in the Black Lives Matter movement, Mm -hmm. right? So it's that, so ultimately the Ruth story ends up being about Boaz, and uplifting him as this kind of ideal man, and Naomi. The text has little to nothing to do with Ruth. She's not given emotion. We don't don't know what she's thinking as she's doing these things. She's just doing them. So when we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, by and large this movement has become a movement for and about black men. But it is held up by and large, and it was started by black women. Right? And I want people to say Mike Brown's name. I want them to say Jordan Davis's name and Trayvon Martin's name, but why do we so easily forget the Corinne Gaines and the Sandra Blands mm. of this world? For me, what that means is to to reclaim something about the perseverance and the tenacity of Ruth and to talk back to that text is to say that we live in, a, in the same kind of broken, classist, troubled world, and we need to start giving the Ruths of this world a voice. Yeah. You're saying something really important in
0: the sense that when you were advocating for Black women, you are not saying you are not for Black men mm-hmm. or White women. Mm-hmm. You were saying let's actually make this a fair and equal conversation where everyone is getting attention.
1: I want some reciprocity in yeah. all of this. Yeah. That's that's my desire. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, this has been amazing. If folks want to hear more from you specifically. Are there spots mm-hmm. they can go? Chapters and books.
1: Uh, there's there's the chapter in I Found God in Me on Ruth liturgical press put out a is doing an all feminist uh commentary so it's a multi the first multi-volume mm. feminist commentary on the bible and in the psalms commentary that came out in october that it's book two of the psalms but maybe book two and three it's written by denise domkowski hopkins but i've got about 13 articles in in that in that commentary, that kind of uh, talk back to the feminist yeah. uh, perspective from a womanist uh, Ben. Yeah, and I've seen
0: people can be on the watch for more stuff coming from you in the the coming months and years. Yes, yes, yeah. we're
1: we're we're working um, diligently. So I'm also doing an article for that same commentary on the Song of Solomon, and hoping to put some things out soon on exodus and the the women in the first three chapters in the mm-hmm. book of exodus yeah well great well i hope listeners will
0: check all of that out uh and continue to explore uh, perspectives that need to be heard in the church and in the world so. yes thanks
1: thanks. thanks for having me okay.